Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is the Red Scare Playbook, Vermont chapter. We open with a Woody Guthrie song performed by Billy Bragg. This is Unwelcome Guest. We'll say goodbye to the Red Scare next door and travel east to the Green Mountains of Vermont, where it turns out that even Republicans can be red-baited. We can turn the page in the anti-labor playbook, but all we'll find is the same old story featuring Henry Wallace, the Communist Party, red-baiting politicians, and smear tactics aimed at the heart of academic freedom, as another university professor bites the dust. But there's one new imposing element to this story, Mao's China, seen through the amazing Hinton siblings, Joan and William. Joan was a nuclear physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project, and William documented the unfolding of China's cultural revolution in Longbow Village, published in 1966 as Fan Shen. Both were, of course, targets of HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. Our guest tonight is Rick Winston, whose new book, Red Scare in the Green Mountains, explores some forgotten history as we see how a small, rural, rock-ribbed Republican state with a historically libertarian streak handled the hysteria of the time. Now, as we again experience a political atmosphere charged with intolerance, condemnation, and widespread falsehoods, Winston's Red Scare in Vermont, like that in Evansville, Indiana, shows us that truth is the first victim of power. Historian of the left Paul Buell writes that the book takes us back to the dark days of the downward turn of American politics toward repression and persecution, but also of extreme bravery of many of New England's best under terrible political pressure. We begin with Winston's parents who, to use the words of Philip Roth in memory of a blacklisted mentor, were impaled on their moment in time, caught in the trap set to ruin so many promising careers of that American era a casualty like thousands of others of the first shameful decade in this country's post-war history, expelled as political deviants, dangerous to let loose on the young. And now, the Vermont chapter of the Red Scare Playbook on Interchange on WFHB. First, um, let me welcome you, uh, Rick Winston, to Interchange. Thank you for inviting me, Doug. Uh, Rick, uh, you actually begin this book, uh, you dedicate it to your parents, Julia and Leon, and uh, you call yourself a red diaper baby. Can you uh, talk a little <laughs> bit about your, your own history? Yes. You know, red diaper baby is a funny term um, that uh, I, I think a lot of people are not familiar with. Uh, I have a friend about uh, my my contemporary, grew up in the 50s, too, uh, very well-read, uh, well-educated. He had never heard that term before. He was, he could not stop laughing. He got it immediately, <laughs> yeah. what it meant. You know, people who uh, drink in their uh, left-wing attitudes with uh, mother's milk, as it were. Mm-hmm. 
I dedicate the book to my parents, uh, I realized the more I thought about this issue and why I got so interested in it um, is that my life was very influenced uh, as I discovered the decisions that my parents made in the 50s when they were under the gun. They were both New York City school teachers threatened with the loss of their jobs. My father actually quit before he knew he was going to be fired. And just through an accident of timing, uh, my mother got to keep her job and and continued to teach until she retired. But um, my uh, childhood adolescence was very, very marked by uh, just uh, the atmosphere in my in my home, the social circle that my parents had of uh, usually other teachers, some of whom had been blacklisted, uh, some of whom um, managed to keep their jobs through one reason or another. So that's that's why I uh, refer to it as a red diaper baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, you do uh, you you quote at the outset uh, something from Philip Roth. Parents like yours and others were, quote, impaled suddenly on their moment in time, unquote. Uh, that's right. Yeah, that's really, I, I, really wonderfully said. That quote is so fantastic. It comes from a eulogy that Philip Roth wrote for um, one of his major influences, an English teacher in his high school who uh, was uh, later fired during the McCarthy era. And uh, like that teacher, you know, my parents were uh, went through the 30s and 40s, and they uh, believed fervently in this and that, and marched and joined organizations and uh, believed in a better world, and we were thrilled when World War II ended. And all of a sudden, all the decisions that they made in the 30s and 40s, um, they were impaled on their moment in time. You know, they they could not maintain their livelihoods because of um, political decisions that they had made 15, 25 years earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's go into that era then, and as your book does, and, and uh, really uh, it treats of the McCarthy era and the Red Scare. This is, I guess, the second Red Scare after the 1917 uh, Russian Revolution being, the, I suppose, the first Red Scare. Right. Um, but you're quick to point out that McCarthy was just the most extreme version, and, and you note that McCarthy followed in the footsteps of President Truman and his Executive Order 9835. Can you tell a little bit about that? Yes. Um, you know, uh, President Truman was feeling a lot of heat from um, right-wing Republicans. The Republicans won both seats, both uh, houses of uh, Congress in 1946, it was one of those wave elections, and to placate uh, the right-wingers who were claiming that he was soft on communism, uh, instituted this, uh, as it was actually called, a loyalty program uh, that resulted in a purge of uh, many people from all kinds of government agencies. So um, McCarthy did not come out of nowhere, and I think if there's one real message of the book, is that McCarthy's... Uh, moment in the spotlight was relatively short. It was basically from February 1950 to the summer of 1954. But my book starts in 1946, and uh, you could say that there was a red scare for as long as there have been reds. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's a useful thing, the red scare. Yeah. I, I have uh, come to much prefer 
the terminology Red Scare. People know what you're talking about when you say the McCarthy era. But, um, you know, we, we, we're going through today, we, we see what the effect of one toxic person can have on the political landscape. Mm-hmm. But if the history of these four years is ever written, people won't start it in 2016 for sure. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to the Red Scare Playbook, Vermont chapter. And our guest is Rick Winston, author of Red Scare in the Green Mountains, detailing the years 1946 through 1960 in the so-called McCarthy era. Right. Well, then uh, let's set the stage for like the book is a uh, a history of this era in Vermont. Uh, tell us a little bit about Vermont as a as a political state. You know, it's kind of uh, staunch republicanism as a state. Yes. Well, the Republican, the strain of republicanism originally in Vermont goes back to Abraham Lincoln. You know, that Vermont had uh, was a very anti-slavery state. As we got into the 20th century, the people that Vermont often sent to the Senate were um, very forward-looking people like uh, George Aiken. We would uh, die for some Republicans these days like George Aiken. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it seems like what you're saying there is that uh, the Republicans of Vermont didn't become Democrats the way other Republicans did. That's That's true. There, there was a there was a split in the Republican Party in Vermont uh, between the very business oriented mm. Republicans and the more uh, let's say uh, populist um, mm-hmm. good government Republicans like Aiken and and uh, the governor at the time Governor Gibson, but the Democrats were just a a little splinter. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any hardly any political power to make a generalization. Sure, sure. Well, I was just trying to understand it as uh, not dissimilar to what I would call our political climate generally, to imagine there is one party, it's a Republican Party, and that the little bit of dissent here and there, a little bit of labor organizing here and there, we might call Democrat, or we might call that obviously the African-American vote in this country as well. Mm-hmm. But um, the uh, the Vermont politics really does seem to me to to be the nation's politics and truly truly calling the nation's politics a party of the republican you know a, a, a politics of republicanism or republican party politics with a little bit of democracy or democratic uh, yeah. politics tossed in oh, that's a good way to put it well uh, even though every single newspaper save one in vermont really identified as republican supporting they were overwhelmingly anti-McCarthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I found that really one of the most interesting strands that I mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. wound up uncovering. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's start at the beginning then, as you start with uh, Charles Plumley or Uncle Charlie. Uh, so go ahead, start and tell us a little bit about that guy. Well, the first chapter, that in 1946, uh, Plumley, who, as I mentioned, was a very anti-union, anti-communist, was uh, challenged from the left by a uh, relative newcomer, a, a University of Vermont professor uh, named Andrew Newquist. He put up a great fight, and he was supported. Uh, his run was supported by uh, quite a few of the, the more liberal Republican papers. 
turns out that it was an open secret that uh, Charlie uh, wouldn't wouldn't pass a sobriety test mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, many on many nights in Washington. Um, so there, re- there really was a feeling that it was time for a change. Hmm. Now, uh, Newquist uh, uh, was a um, also, as you say, a Republican, a political science professor, um, and uh, perhaps uh, kind of dinged on one side by being an intellectual. Yes, and um, you know, long ago, Richard Hofstadter wrote about the anti-intellectual mm-hmm. strain in the, uh, American politics. And boy, that sure that command. Well, what, what, he's an egghead. Mm-hmm. This is a few years before Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> you know, should we trust some pointy-headed intellectual from who graduated from University of Wisconsin of all places <laughs> to uh, tell us Vermonters uh, how to do things? But Charlie was a red baiter then, similar to obviously what uh, what Nixon would do to to win his elections, but uh, uh, not a, not an uncommon ploy, I imagine. Yeah. If if the if our state really did have a um, a mini McCarthy, it would have been Plumley. Mm. But the thing is that he he uh, cut such a crude figure that he never quite gained. He gained enough traction to get reelected, but he wanted to set up a state committee to investigate uh, communists' tainted textbooks, and uh, which got vetoed by the legislature. But the red baiting against uh, Newquist did, did carry the day. Newquist came close, but um, Plumley was reelected. So that seemed a good place to start. Mm-hmm. We were right at the right at the end of World War II, uh, a full four years before McCarthy took center stage. Yeah, and you're, you know, this is another reason why you point out that uh, that red baiting and the red scare is not the purview of Joseph McCarthy alone. That, that there's there's fertile ground be- beneath his feet. Yeah, uh, yes, and that my um, before I discovered this Newquist uh, connection, I was originally going to start the book in 1948 with the Henry Wallace campaign. Mm-hmm. My name is Joe McCarthy. I'm the leader of the band. I don't play in the concert hall, but on the witness stand. I have the finest orchestra in Washington D.C. And night and day, I love to play McCarthy. It's time for a break. This is Joe McCarthy's band, performed well, by Joe Glazer. Stay with us for more on the Red Scare in the Green Mountains. The symbols clang from Maine to Oregon. And Hickenlooper tools the flute as victims take the stand. The finest music in the land is Joe McCarthy's band. Toodly do. Try to sue. Toodly do. Just try to sue. A toodly do. I'll tell you more, but I'll never, never, never say it off the sanded floor. When I started chasing communists, I claimed 205. And then I said twas 81 to keep the thing alive. Then 57 varieties of reds and pinks galore. They're climbing on the ceiling and they're creeping on the floor. Toodly do. Try to sue. Toodly do. Just try to sue, but toodly do. I'll tell you more, but I'll never, never, never say it off the center floor. Well, I'm the biggest headline chaser in the USA. I'd rather chase a headline than a commie any day. I've called them red and I've called them pink and everything between. 
But the fact is that I'm colorblind. I can't tell red from green. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In this segment, Rick Winston tells us how the Progressive Party and the Wallace campaign for president became the albatross hung around the neck of labor activism. But I'll never, never, never say it off the Senate floor. Wallace and his supporters in Vermont were viciously uh, attacked mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. for being pro-communist. Yeah, that's where you go next. Uh, I guess you, you should give us a history lesson, too. Uh, who, who is Henry Wallace? And Yeah, and Henry Wallace is, uh, you know, a, kind of a forgotten figure in American politics mm-hmm. today. He but was the vice president I, to Roosevelt, right? Um, he was the, Roosevelt's vice president from 1940 to 1944, um, replaced on the ticket by Truman in 1944. Mm-hmm. The uh, unfolding of the Cold War might have happened very differently had Wallace uh, remained as vice president. There's an alternative history for you. Mm-hmm. But um, he, uh, Henry Wallace, uh, at the end of World War II, was, um, and seeing who Truman's advisors were, um, was very afraid of uh, of what ultimately became the Cold War. He was holding out options for negotiations, a friendly uh, friendly relationship with the Soviet Union. And the more he got shut out of the process, the uh, more marginalized he became. Mm-hmm. And he finally ran for um, president on the Progressive Party ticket, 1948. Mm-hmm. Now, you do point out that um, Wallace, who had been, quote-unquote, a most admired American in 1946, became something of a pariah just two years later. How did that happen? Well, I think it has everything to do with the um, with the beginnings of the Cold War. You know, in 1946, uh, Winston Churchill and his uh, Fulton, Missouri speech using the phrase Iron Curtain um, and the American newspapers playing up the fact of uh, the uh, Soviet Union um, taking over the governments of Eastern Europe and the timing of Wallace's uh, presidential run coincided with the Soviet takeover of Czechoslovakia, which is uh, just a very ugly chapter. Mm-hmm. So it was um, as the anti-Wallace editorialists would say, how can we trust this guy after seeing what the Soviets did in Czechoslovakia, this Mm -hmm. guy who wants to be friends with the Russians? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, Wallace attracted a lot of people on the left, and I think it was kind of an open secret that the American Communist Party provided him a lot of organizational support. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we he didn't ask too many questions. <laughs> right. Well, we uh, in history we get we get lost frequently about uh, the way things are played as politics and the way there are realities on the ground. Right. That that a lot of these issues are uh, tied to labor politics, labor issues. The fact that there are strong uh, unions formed in in the World War II area era, and that this has to be dealt with by business in particular. That there has to be uh, sort of a way to undermine organized uh, community efforts uh, to sort of 
take hold of one's own destiny in some sense, right? Labor destiny, labor history is tied to these Red Scare issues. Uh, that's right. Um, my father always maintained that on a local level in the teachers teachers in New York City and and nationwide that the uh, the Red Scare was uh, basically a smokescreen for destroying the the power of the teachers union. Mm. And uh, so a lot of uh, union organizers were uh, rank and file were very much in favor of Wallace because they didn't see Truman particularly standing up for their uh, for their rights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to the Red Scare Playbook, Vermont chapter, and our guest is Rick Winston, author of Red Scare in the Green Mountains detailing the years 1946 through 1960 in the so-called McCarthy era. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where we lose the well, I would say we lose our way in some sense, right? We lose our way perhaps in in the major sense where where we uh, aren't able to understand sort of party platforms that would help individuals help families help labor help all these things that we we think about uh and you can you can sort of talk about what's wrong with henry wallace on on a level of henry wallace or on a level of personality on a, or a level of representation uh who one's friends are etc but what's the party platform of this quote-unquote new party the progressive party what's the platform and and how wouldn't people think man that's that's probably a good party <laughs> Yes, you know, uh, Wallace uh, went south. He demanded that his audiences be integrated. They called for civil rights. They called for um, what was what would have been known as socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great platform, uh, and I think a lot of people um, on the left kind of convinced themselves that he really had a chance. Uh, and were incredibly um, dejected when he got a, just a minuscule amount of the vote. In fact, Strom Thurmond's uh, fourth party, the state's rights party, uh, got more votes than Wallace. Yeah, that's a rough one. Or that maybe, again, just uh, you know determines the course of history at that point in terms of, of, of our culture, too. And, um, you know, those... What I think your book calls up or points out as much as anything else, uh, and I think any time I do research into this, we talk about, like I try to think, what's wrong with Americans? Why are they afraid of dissent? Why are they afraid of other parties? Why are they afraid of someone saying uh, capitalism is wrong? You know, what, what's all this fear about? And I think generally in, in a book like yours, we discover, and you, you just by the, the way you go about researching the history, you know, you, you look at newspapers, right? You look at newspaper editorials, you look at who owns newspapers and, and you discover how much of this world is sort of fomented by, by newspapers, by media. Um, yes. And, and, uh, and that became the, one of the major, uh, parts of the Wallace chapter is the role of two right-wing newspapers in uh, not only it would be bad enough if they attacked Wallace, but they really attacked his supporters and went after this um, one particular guy who was an assistant dean at a state teacher's college and um, forced his resignation, basically, because he was uh, a Wallace supporter. 
Yeah, that's uh, tell that chapter too. That's uh, um, uh, Linden Teachers College. Is that right? Linden State Teachers Linden State. College. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was just uh, a person who was involved in supporting Wallace, who helped uh, promote rallies, things like that. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was on the statewide uh, Wallace for President committee, and he gave a speech in Burlington and. Uh, uh, and basically saying this is what Wallace stands for, and uh, said some things that sound, with with the benefit of hindsight, really out there. He, he said uh, uh, in the speech, "American strength is not being thrown on the side of people struggling for freedom." Mm-hmm. Talking about uh, anti, a pro-colonialist action in, in Indonesia, China, Middle East. Greece and Turkey, and during a question session, he said he saw no reason to think of Russia as aggressive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and boy, did they come down hard on him in the newspapers the next day. This one um, newspaper that was owned by William Loeb, who went on to become famous for uh, his newspaper in New Hampshire, the Union Leader. Um, I discovered he actually got his start in Vermont. Mm. Um, their argument was uh, somebody who is so deluded uh, and, and such a sloppy thinker uh, should not be in charge of educating young minds. <laughs> this is, um, again, when this happens in the newspaper, it happens at an editorial level, it happens in a, in a way in which somebody has the power to reach many, many readers. Right. This is uh, seven years before television came right, to Vermont, right. so we have to bring ourselves back to those days, newspapers and radio. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's hard to do, but it's easy enough to say that these are very specific men who have specific ideas, and they're uh, you know, uh, ideologies of, uh, again, this, um, this particular time, uh, right-wing ideologies that, that reach many readers. And, and it's always amusing to me that people argue about teachers influencing young minds while they're doing this from their desks, you know, from behind the desk of the newspaper editorial trying to influence minds. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, so the, this man, uh, Luther McNair was his name, the teacher. He wound up resigning and shortly after that moved to Boston, I wound up, you know, figure, saying, well, so whatever happened to him? He went to Boston. What, what did he do? Well, he he was the head of the Massachusetts ACLU for many many years, and there's actually an annual award named after him. Yeah, he had a successful career. Yeah. It's morning in America, and you can. It's time for another break. This is Days Like These, DC Remix, by Billy Bragg. When we return, anthropologists are red too, don't you know? Stay with us for more on the Red Scare playbook. It's no bloody consolation that Biden cannot run again. Thou tried with the Ayatollah if they can't convince Congress. The only type of Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. Every week, Limestone Post publishes long-form stories on the arts, environment, social issues, and more. Limestone Post, 
Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. Support for Interchange also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. And featuring Michael's crab cake and Cajun Creole recipes. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, more information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails and featuring Michael's Crab Cake and Cajun Creole Recipes. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue. More information is available at the-uptowncafe.com. majority by their silence days like Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. In this segment with Vermont Red Scare anatomist Rick Winston, red baiting anthropology. It turns out that the study of other cultures is apparently a hanging offense in Red Scare America. Peace, bread, work, and freedom are the best we can achieve. And wearing badges is not enough in days like these. Well, I, I do like um, I like chapter I guess it was chapter three that talks about the uh, the group uh, kind of the the the, the farm and the, the yeah. sort of I like I like that one quite a bit. Well, this chapter, which was about a incident that happened in a tiny town called Bethel in July of 1950, it's really fascinating because it ties together so many threads of this era and it really it, its timing has to do with the rise of McCarthy himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like this one a lot. So it's called A Sinister Poison, The Red Scare Comes to Bethel. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, shall I just as concisely as I can tell you what it's about? You can, of course, and you can be less concise. This one, like I said, it has so many interesting characters <laughs> in it. Um, um there was a former Arctic explorer, long since retired, named uh, Vihalmor Stephenson of Icelandic descent, um, who had a summer home in Bethel. He and his wife had a summer home. Uh, they had become friends, very good friends, with uh, Owen Lattimore, who uh, it might be a familiar name to many people, as a Far East expert. He had been uh, Franklin Roosevelt's emissary to Chiang Kai-shek. He was the editor of a very influential um, magazine called Pacific Affairs. And uh, uh, he and Stephenson were friends, and a farm came up for sale. And uh, the two of them came up with this plan to turn that other farm into an institute for what Lattimore called Asiatic Studies. Lattimore, in his travels, had befriended many Mongolians, and he feared that the Mongolians were going to be under threat from the communist government, which was, um, the communists hadn't quite taken over China yet, but were, it was uh, imminent in 1948-49. So the FBI got the suspicion that Lattimore was actually uh, grooming some of these Mongolians to be communist figureheads, 
uh, and the, the truth was so far from that that he was, you know, trying to get Mongolian artifacts out of China. And in this uh, town of Bethel, there was a right-wing lady. If she were around today, she'd have an alt-right blog. And she kept trying to interest um, influential columnists like Westbrook Pegler, who was, if anything, uh, that era's Rush Limbaugh, a very influential newspaper column. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she was trying to get people in the in the news world say, you know, cover the story. There's a there's a communist cell right here in Randolph Center. In the meantime, McCarthy came to uh, prominence and claimed that there were all these people, uh, communists, card carrying communists in the State Department, and seduced the press along to say, I'm going to reveal the name of the person who's behind all this in the State Department. And he finally got around to revealing it, and it was Owen Lattimore, mm. who didn't even work in the State Department. <laughs> right. And uh, completely blindsided Lattimore. And uh, he Lattimore quickly realized that in order to defend himself against McCarthy, he was going to run up some legal fees, and sadly, he was going to have to sell this land that he had bought from Stephenson. And Stephenson said, "Don't worry, I'll uh, I'll take care of it for you." And he placed an ad in the National, the uh, <laughs> I was going to say the National Review, <laughs> the Saturday Review of Literature, and uh, the only person who answered the ad uh, was a longtime. Uh, admirer of Stephenson's, who had done some anthropology work, but who, unbeknownst to anybody, was actually a card-carrying communist, who, as a union organizer in Alabama, had run for governor of Alabama in 1942 on on the communist ticket. Hmm. And so Ordway Mabson Southard? That was his name, Ordway Southard. <laughs> and he's the, like, actually, the only actual communist in this particular time. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, so uh, he was the catalyst for, um, you know, Stephenson um, signs the land deal. Lucille Miller calls the uh, calls in the reporter from the Boston Daily Record, which was a William Randolph Hearst control paper. And uh, pretty soon the details of this land sale come out, and um, the next thing you know, there are national headlines, mm-hmm. McCarthy charges that the uh, communi- that the land is being sold the, for money to go into the communist coffers. Right. <laughs> and this is how the communists work their dirty dealings by... Uh, Raising money this way. Yeah, he just uh, spews out uh, junk in the paper, and all of a sudden it's fact, right? Or people, uh, that's right. Pe- people can't think. Yeah, people can't <laughs> think beyond it. And there was one headline. He said, "This is in Alger Hiss country. Mm-hmm. Um, Hiss had a um, summer home about two and a half hours away from Bethel, but mm. it didn't stop McCarthy from saying, this is all part of a, you know, a conspiracy.' Right. Right." So the rest of that chapter really has to do with the very brave newspaper editors, uh, one uh, who had a weekly in right right in uh, Randolph. He realized uh, covering this via a weekly was not going to be enough, and he talked to his friend Robert Mitchell, who is the editor and publisher of a much bigger paper, a daily in Rutland, which is one of Vermont's biggest cities. And together they... Um, 
they kind of beat the story back. They said, here are the facts. Uh, do you see then, you know, again, that's a story of uh, what I assume are, I don't know if I should assume they're, I don't know what newspaper editors are generally. If you call these uh, Robert Mitchell um, and I think it was a John Drysdale, the other one? John Drysdale, yeah. Yeah, so if they are uh, trying to do the good work of actual journalism, right? Um, yeah. They don't, they're not doing ideological work. They're not trying to, you know, say anyone should or shouldn't be believed necessarily. They're saying, here are the facts of the situation. Yes. They, they, they realized that this was uh, becoming a kind of a hysterical issue. Mm -hmm. And um, the John Drysdale at the, at, uh, Robert Mitchell at the Herald together with another editor in Brattleboro on the other side of the state, John Hooper. Together, those two newspapers hired an investigative journalist mm. with a lot of credentials to come up and just uh, dig it out. To get the facts. So the result mm -hmm. was, at the end of a week and a half, uh, the controversy had completely tied down. Mm. Now, the, the, the thing that also stands out in this chapter, it seems to me, uh, are the sort of operating procedures of the FBI. Uh. <laughs> right? I mean, this is something that, again, we're, we're struggling with trying to understand in, in our present day. Who are the quote unquote good or bad guys even amongst us? Right? <laughs> and, you know, it's not a black and white issue ever, of course. Um, and, but here in this chapter, you know, the FBI seems synonymous with McCarthyism, right? That's right. Um, and there was a wonderful quote by um, a historian that I very much admire who has written about this era. Her name is Ellen Schrecker. And she said, if we knew then what we know post-Freedom of Information Act, we wouldn't call it the McCarthy era. We would call it the Hoover era. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so the FBI was keeping tabs on Stephenson and Lattimore from the late 30s. Yeah, you say they, you know, they're intercepting mail, listening to phone calls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they were under suspicion because they had supported groups like the American Civil Liberties mm -hmm. Union. Yeah. Um, That's the, another point you make, too. And I think this, again, is something that had had happened fairly recently in our uh, in our present day. Um, the suspicion of people like Lattimore, who are anthropologists, you know, and, and the sort of discovery that anthropologists tend to be people who who seem to care about other, you know, social justice issues, uh, you know, understanding the the that the people around them are operate in, in certain and different ways and other cultures can be understood uh, without being vilified or demonized. And, uh, it was so a real eye-opener to me, uh, this, this book I came across called Threatening Anthropology by David Price. Mm -hmm. um, and he talks about the incredible high percentage of anthropologists who were targeted by the FBI simply because, that by nature of their work, they were anti-racist. Right. And the only organizations that were doing anti-racist anti-racist work um, were communist tainted, as mm -hmm. it were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's that was pretty uh, again one of those the things that within this really fascinating chapter uh, that has uh, almost it has some glamour in it too, right? With uh, yeah. Stephenson and I, his I, young I wife. was originally tempted just to take that chapter and follow all the strands out and make 
that its own standalone book well I, when uh, it, it has that feel to it and I, I tell you I almost I almost did the horrible thing of saying man that'd be a good movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> you write a script let's get a script together Rick yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, that the part of uh, that local red hunter named Lucille Miller would mm -hmm. be a very juicy one for yeah, somebody it sure would <laughs> yeah that was a good chapter uh, I liked it very much uh, but you know like I said it wasn't too long ago we had uh, obviously people coming out against anthropology again more in terms of the fiscal nature the value of anthropology I think it was Rick, Rick Scott at the uh, the governor of Florida who, who wanted to cut all anthropology departments from public universities uh, because you couldn't get a job if you're an anthropologist yeah. Yeah, I think you know, again a code for let's let's get those people who care about other people out of here. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um uh you know, you you turn over the rock and <laughs> well, that's yeah, true. Uh, it all crawls out again. That is true. That is true. This is our final break. Here's Barbara Dane with I don't want your millions, mister. Stay tuned as red baiting takes us to China. More on the Red Scare playbook when Interchange returns. Well, I don't want your millions, mister. Uh -huh. I don't want your Support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails, and featuring Michael's Crab Cake and Cajun Creole recipes. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, more information is available at the-uptowncafe.com.
Welcome back to Interchange. For our final segment with author Rick Winston, we venture beyond Vermont to locate our fear, now in China, as the world is painted red with ever-desperate strokes. But it's still possible to take a stand. Witness the Putney School and the amazing Hinton family. The old song said it, but I got more to say. I say, I do want your millions, mister, but I think they ought to be divided up among all of us. Let's actually talk a little bit about the Novikov situation, because to me it also brings the university to the fore, right? It brings the idea of a community dedicated to academic freedom, uh, communities dedicated to trying to understand uh, the world around them, to investigate humanity and, and, and the world. But here in this episode, and perhaps still always, maybe, I don't know, maybe I give universities too much credit or have in, in the past, the, the university sort of fails to, yes. to take a stand. And you think this is a point where a university could take a stand. You can't have all your teachers quit and continue to have a university. Um, yes. I, I heard a really wonderful uh, interview last year. Um, this man, Glenn Frankel, wrote a book about the movie High Noon and the role that the Hollywood blacklist played mm-hmm. in, in its making. And he was interviewed and he was asked, you know, could the McCarthy era happen again? And he said it really depends on the strength of the institutions. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out, going back to the McCarthy era, that the House and American Activities Committee did not blacklist those actors and writers. The studios did. Right. The House and American Activities Committee did not fire those teachers. The universities did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this came through loud and clear in this chapter on Novikov. It did. It you, did the yeah. faculty actually voted to keep him on. Right. And uh, unfortunately, at that time, there was a um, right-wing Republican governor, Lee Emerson, who put, who strong-armed the uh, trustees. Yeah, threatened the university. And threatened the university with loss of funds. And... Um, the uh, the ironies abound. This was a man who was not teaching political science. He was teaching biochemistry. Right, right. And he had, um, you know, he had testified before the Senate, before Senator Jenner of Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the people who said, I will tell you about myself, but I will not name anybody. Right. There were, it's uh, hard to believe, but there were professional perjurers at that time. Sure. If you were to say, you know, the, this person was not a communist, then a next witness would come in and say, he's yeah. lying because I saw that person right. at, the, at this meeting. And next thing you know, you're indicted for perjury. Right. Well, we had the most famous one in Whitaker Chambers. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, that's a whole other show. Yeah, uh, well, we, I did one already, so... Yeah. Yeah, oh, uh, I'll have yeah, to look that yeah. up. But he goes on, too, and becomes somewhat famous, well-respected, etc. Yeah. Novikov is canned, he, he, but then goes on to, he, to great one He great wanted work. to be in, in uh, teaching at UVM and leading a very quiet life of a researcher. And he became this uh, cause celeb. He had very staunch supporters on the faculty. He had very staunch supporters in the religious community Mm. in Burlington. Mm -hmm. But they reconstituted the committee to um, vote on his 
future at the university, and that vote he lost. And he was, they and they kept saying, "You come clean. You tell us, you tell us what you didn't tell that Senate committee, and you can keep your job." And he said, "I won't do that." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was interesting to me about that too is he was yeah, again, as I said, goes on to great success. But is it the the Einstein? Uh... Yeah, the, the Albert Einstein School of Medicine was just forming those days, and. Um, and they evidently had people running it who were not uh, cowed by the pol- by the politics of the of the matter, and saw that this was a great chance to add a shining light. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what was fascinating too is that uh, that he uh, that he comes like he's welcome back. Um, yes, he lived to um, get an honorary degree at UVM in 1989, and the Burlington paper, the Burlington Free Press, publicly apologized for their role in firing him, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for their role in persuading the university to fire him. Right, right. Well, I wondered at that, when, when I read that, I wondered how many apologies they offered, because I assume they wrote many other editorials about other people. Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there was, um, I, I think I included in this chapter, there was a guy who uh, had been active in the Wallace campaign, who wrote the Free Press a letter in 1989 saying, "Congratulations on apologizing for your uh, for your role in the Novikov case, and I think you owe the people in the Wallace campaign a, uh, an apology too, because we were just exercising our freedom of speech, and you accused us of being communist agents." Yeah. yeah. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to the Red Scare Playbook, Vermont chapter. And our guest is Rick Winston, author of Red Scare in the Green Mountains, detailing the years 1946 through 1960 in the so-called McCarthy era. I do want to, if you don't mind, Rick, the, the Putney School also sounds fascinating. And I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit about the, the Hintons uh, and Fanchon and uh, sure. that school. Because, uh, again, as another part of history that, one, I should know at least that book, if not uh, have a clue about the Putney School. But the Putney School sounds like it was headed by some really uh, amazing people. Yes, and uh, uh, Putney School is right in, in the... Uh Southern Vermont. It's just like um, maybe a half hour from the Massachusetts border. And it was started in the early 30s by a uh, remarkable woman named Carmelita Hinton. She was raising three children by herself, uh, who were all teenagers at the time that she, she was at the school. And all three children really went on as adults to be uh, have remarkable lives. And each one of them uh, got their own FBI file, <laughs> yeah. as did uh, Mom Carmelita. Uh, so the the Putney School was uh, one of the first really progressive private schools in the country. It was one of the first co-ed private schools, as I discovered. It was a working farm, so uh, part of your you did academics, but you also took part in outdoor activities. And uh, uh, anyway, the most famous uh, of the three uh, children was William Hinton, 
who uh, during World War II, uh, after having gotten an, a degree in agricultural studies at Cornell, uh, went to work for the, um, the United Nations um, uh, Rehabilitation Agency, helping the, uh, you know, the aftermath of World War II, getting the army back on its, getting the countryside back on its feet. He did a lot of uh, agricultural work in the countryside. Every time he thought he would go back to the States, he, there was something that kept him there. And then he saw that he was going to have a front row seat at the uh, Chinese Revolution. Hmm. So he actually stayed in China till 1953. He took uh, voluminous notes on what he saw in this one village called Longbo Village. In the meantime, his younger sister, Joan, uh, had married uh, William's college roommate named Sid Engst. She became Joan Hinton Engst. And uh, he persuaded her to uh, uh, come to China, too. And um, she, she, uh, Joan and Sid Engst both were also um, witnesses to the revolution in 1949. Um, Eventually, the FBI put the pieces together, and they realized this was the same Joan Hinton, who, as a graduate physics student, had worked on the Manhattan Project. Mm. And she had become totally disillusioned um, when the atomic bomb was dropped. And uh, she realized this was going to be an instrument of war and deterrence and uh, a political weapon. And uh, she was just appalled at the destruction that she had helped take part in. So uh, she completely had a life change, and she and her husband were off working on an uh, agricultural commune in northern China. It wasn't until 1953 that uh, her name surfaced as a possible spy <laughs> because she had knowledge of nuclear energy and uh, at the same time uh, William Hinton decided to come back to the United States his marriage in China had broken up and he came back and all his notes were seized by the Customs Bureau and later delivered to the FBI who delivered them to the um, Senate Judiciary, uh, this is the subcommittee uh, investigating communist ties of uh, organizations that were um, supposedly helping China. Um, a very tumultuous year, 1953. It was just after the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So atomic espionage was very much on people's minds. Mm -hmm. um, in the summer of 1954, William Hinton was called to testify before Senator Eastland from Mississippi, and he uh, refused, I think, on 20 to 75 occasions to, he, he refused to answer questions about his political affiliations and that of his sister. He wanted to protect his sister, who he felt had done nothing wrong. And he was, um, he was mighty pissed. He, <laughs> he thought that this was... Um, part of the uh, reaction to who lost China. It must have been somebody's fault mm -hmm. because uh, it couldn't have possibly been our fault. It couldn't have been Chiang Kai-shek's fault. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, uh, there was a purge of everybody in the State Department who was in favor of 
negotiating with the new Chinese government. William Hinton felt that uh, this was his opportunity to really make a stand. Mm -hmm. And he was very belligerent um, to the committee. And so I've got some (laughs) very interesting contemporaneous accounts of that. Time magazine really lamenting a an ideal an idealist gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, he Pinton had a six year lawsuit to reclaim his um, his notes, and, and uh, as he put it, uh, you know that good old American belief in private property. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what convinced the judges that those notes belonged to me. <laughs> that's our show. We'll close with Hell is Chrome from Wilco. When the devil came, he was not red. Thanks to Rick Winston for taking us on a tour of his adopted home state of Vermont during the McCarthy era. His book, brought out by Rootstock Publishing, is Red Scare in the Green Mountains. The McCarthy era in Vermont, 1946 to 1960. Next time on Interchange, anti-communism means anti-labor. While citizens are encouraged to fear and blame so-called outside agitators, the real menace lies within. A business community committed to the rancor of class and racial divisions with the intent of keeping labor powerless and in the chains of wage slavery. Rosemary Fuhrer, author of Radical Unionism in the Midwest, joins us. Anti-communism means anti-labor on the next Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited tonight's program. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. I was welcome.